I was looking back at some notes uh, for the church from a while ago, and uh, um, yeah, I don't know if we can get the yeah, thanks, get that off the top. So uh, six years ago, next week, if you remember Shui Chung, who was a part of our church in the early days, uh, six years ago, next week, he used this slide, and I thought, what better to uh, yeah, it's hard to see it from that far away, isn't it, Jim? It's kind of like a backseat driver. I'm trying to lean a little bit to, to help you find it there. Uh, but that's okay. We'll be able to see it. So um, so this, this uh, what Chung shared with us is this uh, Chinese idiom that says roughly, when the tiger is away, the monkey will reign in the mountains. Um, when the one who is uh, in authority is gone, then who knows what's going to happen. And so I would love... Uh, let me back up to it. That's all right. We'll be able to get it. Oh, come on. It's okay. It's okay. I'll go backwards to where we were. Yeah, it'll be fine. We can see. Um, what are some examples of when this might be true? When the tiger is away, the monkey will reign in the mountains. And invite you online to unmute, to, to chat, or in the room. Uh, when the monkey's away, or when the tiger's away, the monkey will reign in the mountains. What might that mean? How might that happen? When there is a substitute teacher, the monkeys reign in the mountains. Yes. Yeah, perfect example. Other thoughts? Okay. I'm not as familiar with the whole story, but it's, it has a connection in Robin Hood. So that's good. Yeah, so when, when uh, the one in authority is gone, somebody else starts making the rules. Yeah. When else might this happen in life? Yeah. With college students, and I also must say, and their parents, no longer having their grandparents. Ah. Yeah, so when there's a, a distance between parents and children, grandparents and children, so, yeah, sometimes when the one who has authority is not there, then uh, in, in English we'll use the expression, when the cat's away, the mice will play. A very similar expression. Yeah. Any other time this might happen? When the parents are gone and you have a babysitter. A babysitter, yeah, parents are gone. You know, actually, we do wonder about this with our dogs. Uh, we wonder when we're gone, what really is going on in the house, right? We wonder. But, yeah, parents are gone, the babysitter's there, and we know from, from experience that sometimes the babysitter does some really quick cleaning at the last second when the parents are coming back. Yeah. So the reality is that this applies to us in that Jesus departed and he will return. Right? So in, uh, in Acts 1, we read this, that men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking at the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So we're taught that Jesus was here, and then he, in a profound sense, is not here, meaning his authority is not fully expressed, but he'll come back, and there will be a time when it is. And so while Jesus is not physically present with us, the world will likely ignore Jesus in his ways, right? That would be no surprise, that Jesus teaching the world might say, oh, we don't really need to worry about loving our enemies. That's not very practical. Let's do the real things. Let's do what we know. So the world might ignore Jesus. The real question is, what will Jesus' people do? 
while he is not here enforcing his ways in a, in a direct way. And, and uh, we're going to take a second to pray, as is our pattern. Uh, but I want to say that today's message is one that's very practical. Uh, sometimes it's really important uh, to think about how do we shift in our thinking and sometimes it's, how do we shape our, our hearts? And, and sometimes it's, well, what are we actually going to do? And as Jesus taught in this section, it's very clear he was teaching action. Um, and so I want to pray that he will affect us in our lives, to, to affect our thinking in our hearts so that he will do his work in how we behave, in the things that we do. So uh, let's pray and ask him to do that work. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the fact that we can meet with you at your table. You're our host. You have provided uh, an opportunity for us to, uh, to be with you. We thank you. We get to do that together. We long for the day when we do that over physical food, that we will be with the, the physical presence of our Savior Jesus. Until then, we thank you that we can gather and hear your voice by your spirit. And so we ask that you would work today. Spirit, work in our hearts that it would be expressed in our hands, in our actions. So I pray that you would teach us, every one of us. Uh, I pray that you would shift my behavior, my actions, to follow what Jesus taught. So we thank you that, that we can be confident of your work and your presence. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, Jim, if I could get the great. Um, the, we're looking at the current and coming reign of Jesus. We're in Luke 19, continuing in this journey. And so I encourage you to have that open in front of you. Uh, Luke 19, and there are links to uh, where you can get it um, online, as well as the handouts, uh, and handouts here in the room as well. Let me just say a word about how this story fits in Luke. One of the, the techniques that you, Luke used was geography. He was very interested in talking about people walking, getting to Jerusalem. And so in Luke, we have this whole section as, as a journey to Jerusalem. And last week, we looked at Jericho, this last stop before you get to Jerusalem. And then coming soon, next week, is entering into Jerusalem. Let me just say a word about this journey that, that Luke uses to help organize what he's taught us. The people thought, maybe... Maybe Jesus will bring God's kingdom fully now. Maybe Jesus will step in and change all the laws of the land so they're all godly laws. Maybe he'll step in and change all the structures of the land so they're all structures that represent what God intends. Maybe all that's evil will lose its power. And the people were excited about Jesus coming. They thought maybe now is when he'll make it all right. But Jesus said, I'll suffer and die in Jerusalem, then rise again to life and glory. He said, I'm going there to suffer and die. That's the path right now. I'm not going there to take over and to fix everything. I'm going to suffer and to die. He said it so clearly, and yet Luke tells us the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. (laughs) And I find comfort in that. As I puzzle and try to understand what is he saying sometimes, and, and they couldn't make sense of this. They said, he must be coming to be in charge. And so even after Jesus' death, Luke tells us the disciples who said, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was going to come and make all that was wrong right. 
they thought when he got to Jerusalem, this is going to be good because everything's going to be the way it should be. And Jesus said, no, actually, I'm going to go and suffer and die there. His last step uh, in Jericho, we saw last week this amazing work when this blind man shouts out to everybody, Jesus, son of David, Jesus, Messiah, Jesus, the one who is coming. And this man was miraculously healed to prove that this is the Messiah who's coming, which raises expectations. Zacchaeus believed, and it began the early signs, it seemed, of an economic transformation of the wealthy giving up their wealth for the good of others. And people thought, maybe this is really going to happen now. And, and Jesus says, here's my purpose, to seek and to save the lost. And the people thought, maybe this is going to happen now. And when he came into Jerusalem, as we'll see, the people shout out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They were very excited, thinking his kingdom was going to come fully now. Today, we look at this this uh, just after the last stop in Jericho and just before they enter Jerusalem. Now, let me say also a word about reading the Gospels. Uh, we're going to look at a parable today, and perhaps you're aware of another parable that's very similar, Matthew 25, called the Parable of the Talents, often. Or the New International Version says, the, the Parable of the Bags of Gold. I'm going to say a couple of words about how to read the Gospels. And here's a first principle I think is so valuable in reading the Gospels, is to focus mostly on each passage in its existing context. Right? So rather than saying, okay, now let's open up this parable and this parable, and let's try to figure out what really was said, uh, it's much better to focus on the passage in its context. And in that, pay attention to where the most words are used. Uh, one of the techniques that's often used in the Bible is when they want to emphasize something, they add dialogue. They slow things down. There's more description. There's more so it gets you to pay more attention to where we are. And we'll see that in the story today. There's a surprising place where Jesus adds more dialogue that says, pay attention to this part. So the questions that are great to use when reading any of the Gospels, is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when we read these, is to ask the question, what was Jesus doing with his parable at this time? Rather than comparing it to other passages, say, first of all, why did he tell this here? Why did he tell it in this place, in the story as Luke is telling it? And the related question is, what was Luke doing with Jesus' teaching in this section? So we're going to dive into this parable, and Luke does a wonderful thing for us. He says, let me explain to you a bit about what Jesus was doing. And so Luke 19, verse 11 says, While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Just to highlight a few things while they were listening to this. And again, we just saw Jesus was called the son of David and he accepted it. He was doing miracles. He was transforming society. He, he declared his purpose to come and to seek and to save the lost while the people were listening to this, he told them this parable because the people thought they had this idea in their mind. And what was their idea? That is the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. They were thinking, okay, it started. And by the time Jesus gets to Jerusalem, society will be transformed. And so even in the beginning of Acts, after the end of Luke, but we're told that after the resurrection, Jesus' apostles and disciples were still asking this question. They gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you going at this time to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
And I think people continue to ask that question to this day, especially in a country that has some aspect of a Christian heritage. Is now the time that you're going to clean the place up? (laughs) They kept asking that question. And because they were asking that question, Jesus says, I want to tell you a story to show you a different way to see it. Now, I think a fascinating thing that Jesus does here, one more piece of background, is he uses a well-known story for them, a well-known event, to teach a story about God and his kingdom. And so, uh, just to tell you briefly, Herod the Great was ruler over Judea. So you see down in the the Mediterranean where Jerusalem is, Herod the Great ruled over this area. Uh, When he died, his intention was that his sons would rule over his territory. So here's what they did. Herod Archelaus, his, his son, went to Rome to be, to be appointed king over Judea, right? So he went from Judea over to Rome to be appointed king because Rome is the one who had the power. The Jewish people didn't like this, so they sent a delegation to oppose him. So Herod went off to Rome. The Jewish people sent a delegation of people off to Rome to say, we don't like him, don't let him be king over us. He was appointed king, and he returned to reign. And so then Herod came back from Rome to rule. Jesus used this story to teach us about the time between his becoming king and his enforcing his reign. So there's a time when Jesus is gone in the sense that he's not ruling. He's not enforcing his rule. And so that's why the idiom, when the tiger's away, the monkey reigns in the mountain. Jesus taught that he'd be away for a time. And the question is, would the monkeys take over? <laughs> right? That's what was in people's mind. Why doesn't he step in and fix this? What will happen? So, with that as a background, here's a story. I'm just going to read all the way through the story that Jesus told. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minus. Put this money to work, he said until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he'd given the money in order to find out what they gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy and a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came, and he said, Sir, here's your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you, because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in, and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. 
But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. And that's where you hate to end and say, this is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Right? What a puzzle. And yet Jesus says, I'm going to tell you how this action of the kings over Judea, of the Herods who would do this, I want to teach you something about my own reign and how you were to live. So let's go back to the beginning of the story and just walk through it. So he said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country, just like Herod, to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. This is 100 days wages and translation issue, a wonderful question. Why leave it in a word that doesn't make sense to anybody unless you look at the footnotes? But there are arguments why people say that. So in any case, it was a good amount of money. Not as big as the the amount of money that is told in other parables that Jesus told, but this man says, put this money to work until I come back. Right? So he's going to leave. He says, while I'm gone, here's, here's money. Put it to work. He goes away, and yet the people don't like him, and they send a delegation following him off to Rome to say, we don't want this guy to be our king. And clearly in the story, these people directly rejected this man as their king. Didn't do much good, though, because he was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for his servants to whom he'd given the money in order to find out what they gained with it. So just to stop for a second, he was made king. He became king. They couldn't stop him. He's king. So now he comes back and says, let me find out what these servants have done that I've entrusted with these things. So the first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned ten more. And he says, well done, my good servant. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. So we first had this group of people who said, we don't want you to be a king at all. And then here's a servant who was a good servant. And this man did as the master commanded. And he was rewarded. He was rewarded with far more opportunity. Right? A hundred days wages versus ruling over ten cities. Right? A dramatic increase of saying, we want you to be able to have the opportunity to serve more. To do what you've been doing. So that was the first servant who was a good servant. The second king. And said, sir, your mind has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. So again, this man also did as the master commanded. And he also was rewarded with far more opportunity. And then the story slows down. So we get to focus on this other servant. Then another servant came and said, sir, here is your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. He said, I took it, and you told me to put it to work, but I just took it, and I I, I hid it. I just put it someplace. Because he says, I was afraid of you. You're a hard man. Who wants to work for you, they say. Because if I work for you, you're just going to take what you didn't put in. You're going to take advantage of my labor. You're going to take out what you didn't put in, reap what you didn't sow. And we're going to unpack this a bit. I see in this man's action is not a direct opposition but a non-cooperation, saying, sure, I'll hold on to your mind. I'm not going to steal it from you, but I'm certainly not going to do anything with it. I'm just going to hold on to it until you come back. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked 
servant. To say, you wicked servant. To unpack, how is he a wicked servant for just non-cooperation? You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man? Taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money in deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? He says, if you really meant these words, you would have just put it in the bank so that I could have gotten some. But in reality, you're resisting me without saying you're resisting me. You're blaming me. right? So I think what we see in this passage is that passive resistance is still genuine resistance to the king. The king says, this is wicked. You speak poorly of me and you are going against my commands. And to justify his inaction, he accused the king of being unjust. And he says, you're the bad one here. And the king had said, I want you to put my money to work. Notice that this is the king's money still. It's not a gift. He says, I'm entrusting to you something and I want you to use it. I want you to put it to use. And he says, no, you're a bad person to work for, so I'm just going to hide it and ignore it until you come back. So the master says, he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they replied, he already has ten. Right? The, the, the people resisted, say, no, this isn't just either. It doesn't make sense. And, and the people resisted the will of the king. They said, no, no, we don't think you've got good ideas. And he replied, I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. So Jesus has talked about the people who were directly opposing this master. The people who went along and did what the master said, and the people who just kind of passively resisted their non-cooperation. But here at the end, he says, you know what? There were people who didn't want this king to be over them. And what the Herods would have done is to just directly kill them. And many people have wrestled with, maybe we could drop this part of the story out because it just doesn't really fit very well with what we want to believe about God. And yet, Jesus does say that there is a judgment, that those who rejected the man will be judged, right? That that the those who reject this man will be judged and there is a judgment. And Jesus makes this puzzling statement. Everyone who has more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Let me suggest a way to understand this. It's helped me a lot. And it's not just a generic thing to say everybody who has. But everyone who has what they have for Jesus will be given more. Everyone who has what they have only for themselves, even what they have will be taken away. So uh, let's step back from the story for a second and to look at the the timeline of Jesus' reign on earth. So Jesus' reign on earth, he came in the the first century, right? And and then he said, I'm going to come back. There's an unknown time in the future when he'll return. And then there's this in-between time that we live in today. If you go back to the first century, this is Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. When he came the first time, he became king. And when he came the first time, he formed and empowered his church by the Holy Spirit. Then he left. And in the in-between time, his church, his work is to be done by the church. And then he will come a second time. And when he comes a second time, now he's going to enforce his reign over all people and all creation. 
He says when he comes back, there will be a final judgment and an unfolding reward. And so we've got this reality that Jesus came and became king. He will come again and fully reign as king. And in between, his work is to be done by his church. So the the idea is, I wrestle with this, I I think that, that what we see is that Jesus will treat us according to how we respond to his authority. Right When he says, I'm king, the question is, what happens next in our hearts? And for some people, the next thing that we say in our hearts is, I don't like having a king. <laughs> I don't like you being my king. I'm going to send a delegation to say no. And sometimes in our hearts, we say, okay. And sometimes we say, well, I won't oppose you. But I'm not sure I'm ready to jump in. Right? So possible responses to the king. So this is where I think it's really helpful for me to see there are two kinds of resistance. There's active resistance, where we resist by what we do. And there's passive resistance, where we resist by what we don't do. Right? So active resistance says, I reject you as my king. By what I do, my action, I say, if you do this, I'm going to say, or if, if he commands us to do this, we say, well, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to. I'm going to oppose your authority. I'm going to go against you. You say you're going to be king. I say I don't want you to be my king. Passive resistance is where we resist by what we don't do. And so this is sometimes described as non-cooperation. Just says, I'll let you do what you want to do, but I'm not participating in it. So years ago, I worked with uh, uh, a man who was amazing as a faculty member at MSU in education and then went off and worked with schools. And uh, as he struggled, sometimes he struggled to help schools in the environments that they were in. He sometimes got a little bit cynical about government. And so here was his recommendation to people in schools about how to work with the government. And that was, be the last one to obey the government. Because by then, they'll probably have changed their minds. So they say, do this, and just drag your feet. Just go slowly. Just ignore it as long as you can. And then they'll probably have changed or be doing something else by then. And you resist by non-cooperation. Don't say, oh, this is terrible. Just ignore it. Just pretend it's not there. Right? And, and passive resistance, I think, is what this man did. He said, I'm just going to bury it. I'm not going to steal this from the master. I'm just going to ignore the command. And so passive resistance is not actively pursuing God's purposes. It's not going against his purposes. It's just saying, I'm not going to pursue them. Right? And, and, and maybe it's doing a bunch of other good things saying, well, I'm not going to do wrong things, but I'm just not going to actively pursue what he wants. Let's just do other good stuff. And Jesus taught, this is a path to significant loss. Jesus will treat us according to how we respond to his authority. And possible actions, well, we could join in active rebellion. We could join in passive resistance. We're invited into an active submission. Jesus said those who actively oppose, there's going to be a strict judgment. And Jesus taught this repeatedly. There's a horrible judgment for people who say, we don't want you as our God. We don't want you as our king. And he says, then you won't have me as your king, and you'll be cut off from all that's good. In this passage, Jesus describes a passive resistance that that still talks about a significant loss. Loss of opportunities, loss of what we have. And the act of submission is where there's an invitation to be blessed, especially with expanded opportunities. 
So in response to the king, this act of rebellion, he says there's real judgment for that. Passive resistance. There's real loss. Real loss in that. Now, in Matthew's story, there's real judgment against the person who does this passive resistance. Here Luke just says, the resources they were given, they're taken away. And yet those who join in, in this work, there is a great blessing of more opportunities. Application is really straightforward. I mean, the, the first description of it is just to treat Jesus as king, even when he's not physically present. To say he's king. As king, he has authority over everything I have and everything I am. He is king. Now, so often the world says, if he's not around, why worry about it? Maybe he's not real. Maybe he's not coming back. And let's just ignore it. If it makes sense, do it. If it doesn't, don't, don't worry about it. But Jesus is teaching. Teach him as king, even when he's not physically present. And a key way to do that is to put our resources to work for what Jesus values. Put these things to work, he said. And so I'm going to ask two questions. The first is, what, what did Jesus value? And then what resources do we have? Well, Jesus' values certainly include meeting the needs of yourself and people in your care. Right? Jesus, and elsewhere in the New Testament, clearly says, you should take care of people in your household. You should take care of the people who are entrusted to you. You should do that. Use your resources to do that, and that pleases him. Clearly, Jesus valued glorifying God, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, in a diverse unity in the church. As people gather, he says, this is something that he values and we should do. And, as we saw last week, Jesus' value, values include to seek and to save the lost. To, to meet the needs of the people in our care, to, to take care, take responsibility for ourselves, he values that. To, to be committed to the community of God's people, to join together in worship of God and to join together in seeking and saving the lost, to help those who are in need. And I just want to highlight today ways that we help people who are in need. We talk a lot about head, heart, and hands, and so thinking of hands. Jesus cared about meeting people's physical needs. He healed sick people. He fed hungry people. And we're told this is true religion, to care for people with real physical needs. These are people we are to help we're to, to deal with hearts and to care for relational needs, to reach out for the lonely, for the vulnerable. And for head, we're to care for people and their knowledge and their understanding. And especially to seek and to save the lost is to help people to know Jesus Christ. We're to put our resources to work for what Jesus values, and he clearly values. Taking responsibility for our lives and caring for those people he's entrusted to us. To be committed to the community of God's people and to join in the work to seek and to save the lost. So we're to put our resources to work for what Jesus values. And just thinking about some of the, the resources we have, certainly money. Right? So our money should be used to reflect what Jesus values. Our time and our ability. Our relationships. Our career, our learning, our house, our car, our bicycle, our hobbies. Right? The stuff that we have. The influence that we have. All sorts of resources have been given to us. And Jesus says, I'm your king. Put these to work for what I value. In creative ways and in new ways and different ways, whether you have a lot or a little really isn't the point. Use what you have to pursue my values. 
And then I love this statement that as we do this, God is able to bless you abundantly so that all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And this is what Jesus said in this parable, is that using what you have for Jesus leads to more ways to use what you have for Jesus. He says, if, if you'll be faithful in a little bit, I say, I don't have access to much money. And I know the struggle as a student. You say, I have loans. Is it responsible for me to give when I have a loan that I have? Right? I don't have much. It won't matter. Jesus said, if you're faithful with a little bit, then he will create new opportunities that are bigger for you to give. Now, whether that's more money, I don't know. But he's going to create additional ways because he's able to make everything abound to you so that you will abound in giving to others. And I think this is fascinating. This is God's purpose and blessing. God will bless you so that you will give to what he values. That's what his blessing is for. And so I think something that's helped me in a practical way is to find connections. Connections between what we have and the key kingdom values. Right. So let's find a way to map between these. So when you think about your money, much or little, your time and ability, your relationships, your career, your learning, your house, your career, whatever the possessions are, your influence. So then the question is, how will we use that to care for those who are in your care? How will you use that to glorify God in diverse unity? How will you use that to seek and to save the lost in the whole of who they are, head, heart, and hands? Because Jesus says through this parable, put to work the valuables you have for me and my kingdom until I come back. And I love that the expression in this parable, the Greek word is the word that we get pragmatic from. (laughs) He says, be very pragmatic about this. Use these things for my values. And I have to say, I delight in watching people do this. Let me just give you a few examples. Um, My dad probably won't be thrilled. But one of the things that I loved in watching my dad in uh, in his hobbies is he used them to invite people into relationship. My dad would fly radio-controlled planes, and he would go out to a a field that was the Kinawa Middle School. Um, So in that area, he would go out in the field on calm evenings and fly these radio-controlled planes. And inevitably, people would come over and say, what is going on? (laughs) And he would start a conversation and care for them by inviting them to enjoy something he enjoyed. And this became an opportunity for ministry. We have neighbors who, uh, they see their house as a resource that anybody who needs can make use of it. They told us a story, they purchased a new car, and they said, this is for whoever needs it. And so literally, their friends were the first ones to drive their brand new car because their friends needed it. And they say, it's a resource we have, we want to use it for kingdom values. People need it, okay. We saw them last night. And they said, you need the car? (laughs) Because it's available. It's a delight to see people who do this in their relationships. They say, we have a community of good relationships in our home, and our setting. We would love for you to come and find peace there, to be welcomed there. Uh, it's a delight to see people who are great at practical things, saying, how can I serve you with my practical things? Is there repair I can do in your house? Is there something I can do? Jesus said, whatever it is that's valuable that you have, put it to work. Put it to work for me and my kingdom values. And he says, when you do that, I can make all this stuff abound to you so that you'll have more and more opportunities 
to join in his work. Put to work the valuables you have for me and my kingdom until they come back. And the sad thing is that Jesus said non-cooperation with Jesus is a path to loss. And non-cooperation says, well, maybe my excess, maybe other things, maybe another day. Because I don't have the resources, I don't have the time now. But Jesus says active participation with Jesus is the the path to blessing. Because this is how we lived. He used what he had for the good of other people. So, the Chinese idiot. When the tiger's away, the monkey will reign in the mountains. And it's no surprise the world resists the reign of Jesus, both passively and actively. So the reality is that Jesus' followers are invited to put our resources to work for the purposes of our king and to enjoy his blessing. And I was just want to take a time for us individually to, to listen to the Holy Spirit. And, and I just it's the range of things. From saying, you know what, I have just a little bit of, of finances. I just have a little bit of ability with cars. Or or I have this interest in medicine and there's a world in need of Jesus. What do you want me to do? And I invite us just to be open to what he would call us to do. And then to follow as he leads. So let's take a time in silence and then I'll wrap us up in prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, we recognize you as king. You have authority over all of your creation. You have stepped into this creation and given your life to give life to all who will trust in you. You gave what you have to live out the values of your father, the value of salvation. We thank you for that. And so we, as your people, ask that you would help us. Help us to put to work, to be pragmatic about taking things that you have entrusted to us to pursue your values. Father, for the things that we shouldn't change, like getting up and going to work tomorrow if that's what's on our agenda tomorrow, or or being a student tomorrow. And maybe that shouldn't change, yet I pray that you would help us to do that as an act of worship to you to recognize that we do this for you and because you value it. And Father, I ask that you would help us to see the ways that you invite us, call us, to change our ways. Rather than passively letting your work go. That you would open our our hands to move our feet. That we would choose to join your work with what you have given us. We thank you so much for the privilege, the honor it is to be a part of your work. We thank you for your grace that is so patient with us. We thank you that your work of salvation opens the door for us to join in your work to seek and to save. 
those needing rescue. We give you praise, Jesus, and ask for your help to follow in your ways. Amen.